Developability really only makes sense in the context of your manufacturing platform. So if R&D doesn't know what your manufacturing platform is, they can't develop a good developability assessment. It just, there will be too many disconnects and misinterpretations of what that platform is. Hey, smart biotech scientists, welcome back. We are in the middle of a conversation with Gene Lee, who is the chief technical officer at AlterBio, a biotech company based in the Bay Area, focusing on novel first-in-class biologics for autoimmune diseases. And we are asking the question how we can speed up CMC development and why and how we should do developability assessment. So if you haven't listened to part one of our conversation where we dive into the CMC development part using platform processes, go back and listen to part one. And in part two, we're going to break it down, how you can do a developability assessment and when you should do it and what are the specific questions you should answer. So stay tuned for an exciting conversation. Are you juggling the complexities of CMC development while trying to enjoy the beauty of biotech? Have you ever wondered if there's a way to simplify bioprocessing? Welcome to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast, where we're diving headfirst into the very challenges you face. We're breaking it down, demystifying the jargon, and giving you the keys to unlock your full potential. I'm your host, David Brolman, and I get it. With 15 plus years in the biotech industry, I face the same challenges you do. There's a way to simplify and streamline so you can remove complexity, you can skip trials and errors, deliver without delay your groundbreaking therapy to clinics at market, and still enjoy every single step. Do you want to learn how industry experts and I did it? Grab a cup of coffee and your favorite notebook and pen. Now is the time to take your bioprocessing game to the next level. Let's smarten up biotech. There's definitely exciting stuff coming. AI is big and it's just, yeah, very early still. So moving away from the trends and the innovation, let's go into a bit more practical discussion. And you mentioned developability assessment several times already, Gene. Can you explain for those of our listeners who are not familiar or less familiar with the developability assessment, what that is and why is it important to do that? It's a really great topic and one that I'm quite passionate about. I think, first of all, developability assessments are usually taking place in, let's say, an R&D organization before a molecule heads over to development. For people who may not have worked in this arena, very typically in drug discovery, you start with thousands, not tens of thousands of potential candidates in the hit discovery phase. So in an antibody screening campaign, for example, you may want to screen multiple candidates to see which ones bind to your target with the highest affinity. And that's great. And that's sort of a functional screen that needs to be done in order to identify those antibodies which have the best potential to have the functional impact that you're looking for. But as that screen begins to winnow down, you have the opportunity then to look at other attributes of those antibody candidates, not just functional, but now you can look at developability or manufacturability. That is, which of those antibodies have the potential to be expressed 
well in ultimately your large-scale bioreactor. Which of those antibodies has a tendency to aggregate under conditions which are representative of your cell culture process? And while it might seem like you're now quite far away when you're working in a discovery lab from your 1,000 or 2,000 liter bioreactor, it's not too early to begin asking these questions. So a proper developability assessment can be as simple as I'm going to express my top 20 candidates in a small-scale CHO transient system, readily available in most discovery labs. And that will already give you some information about which of those antibodies has a better potential for good expression in a mammalian cell. But I think a really sophisticated and more predictive developability assessment really requires you to think about how representative your small-scale system is of your larger-scale manufacturing process. So if you can express your antibodies not in a transient system, but in a stable CHO system, that's better because we know that transients and stables don't always agree with each other. If you can perform C analysis of your express protein to look at your high molecular weight profile, that's even better because I think aggregation propensity at small scale is quite predictive of how they will behave and perform at larger scale. And then you can even add additional layers. What is the hydrophobicity of that antibody in a HIC HPLC? How high can you concentrate that antibody in a standard formulation, et cetera, et cetera. And so the more layers you build into that early developability assessment, the better chance you'll have of advancing candidates which will succeed through process development and manufacturing. As I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, David, CMC development takes a long time, and often you start early before you have all the information necessary to have a good understanding of what the molecule will do. Because you're starting early, I think there's always going to be a risk that you've placed your bets on the wrong horse, and then you've sort of gone through this long development process only to find out that your molecule just isn't manufacturable, or you have to expend a lot of effort and resource to optimize your process, which is now no longer strictly platform. And you want to avoid that. And I think that sort of initial investment in time and energy to do a developability assessment before you've gone into real PD activities, time and effort well spent. This is well said, Gene, and I just want to highlight it once again. What I'm hearing is that Doing a developability assessment avoids a lot of problems later on, and it's money well invested and it's also time and effort well invested. And what I'm also hearing is it's better to do it early with more candidates to avoid any big issues later down the road, right? Yeah, and I should add, David, that it begins even, I would say, in the choice of what molecule or what kind of molecule to develop. So here we're talking about antibodies, of course, but when you're thinking about some of these new modalities, how far away from an antibody do you really want to get? And that's a legitimate question that protein engineers and therapeutic area scientists will ask. I think it's good for the CMC-minded person on your project team to ask the question, should we consider structure or a molecule that has some developability aspects already built into it. So 
could we include an FC portion in the molecule? Because we know that will be much easier to purify later on. So I think already at the very beginning stages of protein design and engineering, you can already begin introducing sort of these developability concepts. Can you help us understand, Gene, just the basic questions we want to answer in a developability assessment? I've heard, is it manufacturable? What are the other parts? I think at its most basic elements, you want to look at productivity because productivity will solve a lot of issues later on. You will need to make a minimum amount of protein, not just to serve the clinic, but even for additional PD activities. You want to make sure that your molecule can be expressed and aggregation. So tighter and aggregation, I think those are the two things at a minimum that you want to be able to assess in your developability assessment. We talked a little bit about AI, and AI is a data-driven tool. And so the more data you can build into your developability assessment, the more data that you can pull out of that assessment, the better decisions you'll be able to make around your candidate. So again, I've seen uh, developability assessments that include, in addition to aggregation, hydrophobicity, a look at the PI of the antibody as well, that can have an influence on how manufacturable your molecule is and behavior under sort of stress conditions as well. So all these factors are doable, I think, even in an early discovery lab. And the question is, how much do you want to invest in your developability assessment? Great. Now we have done our homework. We have a molecule that we know that it's developable. Now you mentioned it, Gene. CMC development is a lengthy process. It takes many years. Let's focus on the project itself a bit. And you've worked both in big pharma and in small now biotech. What are the key differences in developing a drug? What have you observed? I think in a large pharma company, I mentioned sort of the shots on goal strategy, getting multiple candidates into preclinical and then clinical development as a way to really de-risk your investment and have a chance of recouping that investment. And that strategy works in large pharma, particularly if you have a sort of healthy portfolio development underpinning that strategy. At a small biotech company, you're typically not working with a large portfolio of molecules. You're lucky if you have one or two molecules that really believe in and you want to bring all the way into a commercialization. And so I think the decision-making that is based on platform strategies is a little bit different between large pharma and small biotech. So I think the platform approach, as you mentioned, David, is really a low cost, low investment way to get into the clinic very fast and minimize your investment before clinical proof of concept, because you just want to get as many molecules into the clinic as possible. And that does have some advantages for small biotech as well. I don't necessarily, as the CMC lead, want to over-invest in a process before clinical proof of concept either. But if I don't have anything else sort of coming up behind me in the portfolio, I then need to consider, well, does fast proof of concept make sense or does a more all-in strategy make sense? Because really the company's success could very much depend on the success of your one or two key assets in the clinic. So it's a different mindset then. Here, I think you could consider investing many more resources into CMC development before you have clinical proof of concept. 
So for someone working in a smaller company like yours, what would be the key parameters for success to succeed CMC development and bring your molecule into clinics and finally, hopefully, into market? I think, again, taking a look at the big picture is important here, understanding what it is that the company is trying to do with the drug and what the drug is ultimately designed to do. As far as the CMC process goes, particularly for those molecules which don't fit the platform perfectly, I think it's important to identify those areas where the platform does work, identify those areas quickly, because you will need to spend more time on those areas which don't work. And you and I know, you know, CMC development, it's a simple catchphrase, but really encompasses a lot of different things. Everything from cell line development, but even before that, it's sort of vector design and how you screen cell lines. It encompasses cell culture processes, media screening. It encompasses your downstream unit operations, scale up tech transfer, manufacturing, formulation, et cetera, et cetera. So CMC development is a very short catchphrase that really means a lot of different things. And quite possibly, even for, let's say, difficult non-platform molecule, certain elements of that platform, of that CMC process, will work just fine. And you don't need to spend a lot of time on that. But other elements will be more problematic. And for the project to succeed, for your CMC development to succeed, you need to make sure that all of those elements are successful. So identify those key areas and spend time there. Absolutely. And there's another challenge I've observed, and we all know that this gene, there is often a gap between R&D and then process development and scale up. It's because there are different mindsets, there are different skill sets as well. And I think especially in a smaller company, you don't necessarily have the manufacturing background. You have much more scientists in a smaller company. So how can we make this transition from R&D into early process development and already have this mindset of scale-up early on? How can we make this seamless? My advice to small companies is hire a CMC expert. Because I have seen, you have probably as well, not all small biotech companies have CMC experience. And so they will invariably rely on consultants. Or worse, they will rely on the expertise of the CDMO that they're working with. I think it's always a good idea to have CMC experts on your team as you're developing your drug. Okay, so now let's assume you've hired a CMC expert into your biotech company. I think communication is absolutely the key here. Whether you're working with an external CDMO or if you're fortunate enough to have an internal manufacturing organization, R&D and manufacturing, as you said, very often sit in very different areas. They have different cost centers. Sometimes they're in different time zones as well. And so the communication, particularly at that interface between R&D and, let's say, process development, becomes so important. And that communication needs to go both ways. We talked a lot about developability assessments, but developability really only makes sense in the context of your manufacturing platform. So if R&D doesn't know what your manufacturing platform is, they can't develop a good developability assessment. It just, there will be too many disconnects and misinterpretations of what that platform is. So it's important for that to be well understood by both sides. It's also important for R&D to inform the process development group of any sort of 
potential challenges that they may face in CMC development from the beginning. So if the R&D team has designed this fancy new molecule, which they know just can't be expressed well in mammalian cells, they've tried CHO, they've tried HEC-293 cells, and it just doesn't work, doesn't make sense then for the CDMO to straight away start their development in CHO cells. They may want to consider other systems. It might not even be the right CDMO to bring that process forward. So I think there has to be that knowledgeable CMC person in the biotech company, and there needs to be really good communication between R&D and the manufacturing organization. And based on your experience, Gene, what are a few things we can do right away to facilitate this communication? A lot of it just comes to interpersonal sort of relationships, get to know each other. It seems silly to say that, but as you say as well, David, the requirements of R&D and manufacturing are quite different. The strategies are different. Mindset, even the skill sets can be quite different but they're complementary as well. And at the end of the day, you both want to be successful in bringing your drug to the clinic, and that's the common ground. And if you can find that common ground, I think it becomes much easier than to share that responsibility of bringing an interesting candidate from R&D into manufacturing. As simple as that. Now, there is a potential pitfall to that as well, or watch out. You can't be over-reliant on those personal relationships. It's a great starting point. But let's say I'm sitting in R&D, and David, you're sitting in a manufacturing organization, and you and I sit down for a beer, and, and we say, great, we get it. This is what we're going to do. If I leave R&D, then who are you going to talk to? Then you're stuck holding the bill for that glass of beer. So I think, first of all, it's important for the individuals to begin spreading out this interpersonal relationship to their teams so that it's not just reliant on one or two people, but rather teams. It's also important to document the best practices that you've established so that future generations can implement what you've worked hard to build. And then finally, I think it's good to recognize that things will change. So R&D strategy may change, the manufacturing strategy may change, platforms might change. And whatever you've documented that works today may not be relevant tomorrow. And so it's always good to recognize that change is inevitable and that you need to update and modify whatever approach it is that works well today. So I'm curious now, Gene, you have been working as a CTO for two years. Can you tell us a bit about your life? How does this look like? The first thing I should say is, yes, I'm the CTO, and that stands for Chief Technical Officer, not Chief Technology Officer. So I can't tell you how many people on LinkedIn have reached out to me to offer their software development tools or IT support. It's not what I do <laughs> at all. So I'm the CTO, Chief Technical Officer. I think in my role as a CTO, maybe there are two things that come to mind. One is that I have much broader scope of responsibilities. So in my previous job, I covered a lot of aspects of CMC development, but I think my scope now expands to looking at activities and research as they sort of pertain to CMC development, but also working closely with a lot of external vendors to ensure that we have really the full scope of activities necessary to make our project and our company ultimately successful. I guess the other really important aspect of my job is that I have a much deeper insight into how CMC is embedded in and influences the overall corporate and company strategy. So 
I'm fortunate to sit on a very talented executive team as a member of the C-suite. Our CEO, Judy Chow, our chief medical officer, Jesse Hall, our chief financial officer, Jerome Grassman, and the president of our Taipei office, Ping Ye, they all have years and years of experience in biotech, both small and large. And they also bring very different viewpoints and perspectives to the table. And I'm fortunate to, first of all, learn a lot from them about what makes a company work, but also to be able to then offer my experience and my expertise as a part of that team. So it's really a wonderful experience. I'm very fortunate to be a part of it and to really have a chance to see the company succeed. As we're wrapping up, Gene, what is the number one thing you want us to take away from our conversation? I think it's really trying to see the big picture as much as you can. Now, I think for a biotech scientist, process development engineer in the lab, you're very focused on the task at hand. But I think already you can talk to people who are upstream of you and downstream of you to see what it is you're doing and how it influences or is influenced by those sort of adjacent groups. And as you have the opportunity to do so, look more and more outside of your area of responsibility, your organization, to see how your work fits into the big picture. I think that is so important to provide context and structure to what each of us can do. Yeah, smart biotech scientists Look at the big picture. It's so important to look at the big picture. Gene, where can people connect with you? Sure. I think people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. They can check out our company website as well. That's altrubio.com. And certainly people are also welcome to reach out to me on email at gene.lee at altrubio.com. Great. I'm going to leave all this information in the show notes. So do take advantage of this opportunity. Reach out to Gene Lee. And Gene, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing so many insights. It has been a, just a huge pleasure. David, it was so nice to catch up with you again. All right, smart scientists. That's all for today on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Thank you for tuning in and joining us on your journey to bioprocess mastery. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, we can empower more scientists like you. For additional bioprocessing tips, visit us at smartbiotechscientist.com. Stay tuned for more inspiring biotech insights in our next episode. Until then, let's continue to smarten up biotech.